Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. The show is about to begin. As far back as I can remember, I've always wanted to be a gangster. I know I'd go from rags to riches If you would only say you care Though my pocket may be empty I'd be a millionaire Welcome back. You are listening to Three Guys in a Flick. This is where we review the good, the bad, and the absurd. Tonight's episode, Goodfellas. Beware spoilers. Coming to you live from the Copacabana Club, I am the Don. And to my right, we have our comic book guy, Johnny Two Times. How you doing? How you doing? And to my left, we have the enforcer, Ken. (laughs) You're a pistol. You're really funny. You're really funny. What do you mean I'm funny? It's funny. You know, it's a good story. It's funny. You're a funny guy. (laughs) What do you mean? You mean the way I talk? What? It's... Just, you know, you're you're funny. It's funny, you know, the way you tell the story and everything. Funny how? What's funny about it? Donnie, no. You got it all wrong. You got it all wrong. Oh, no. Hold on there, Johnny, two times. He's a big boy. He knows what he said. What did you say? Funny how? Just... What? Just, you know, you're funny. You mean... Let me understand this because, you know, maybe it's me and I'm a little fucked up maybe, but funny how? I mean, I'm funny like a clown. I amuse you. I make you laugh. I'm here to fucking amuse you. What do you mean funny? Funny how? How am I funny? Just, you know, how you tell the story. What? (laughs) No, no. I don't know. You said it. How do I know? You said I'm funny. How the fuck am I funny? What the fuck is so funny about me? Tell me. Tell me what's so funny. Get the fuck out of here, You motherfucker. I almost had him. I almost had him, you stuttering prick. Hey, Johnny, was he shaking? I wonder about you sometimes, Kenny. You may fold under questioning. We chose to talk about Goodfellas tonight to pay our respect and to honor uh, the great Ray Liotta who passed away. Were you guys surprised to hear that? Totally. Yeah, totally unexpected. What is he, like 67? I yeah. believe so. Yeah, it's a, it's it's a true loss, and he was such a great entertainer, and will forever be known uh, as Henry Hill, and I think uh, d- deservedly so because you know without Ray Liotta, Goodfellas is not what Goodfellas ultimately becomes. You Do you have I mean? a favorite Ray Liotta movie? Uh, well, the number one has to be Goodfellas, I think. But uh, looking back on it, he has done a lot of things. For me, I thought his first movie was a really impressive show. When I saw him in Something Wild, he plays a truly menacing bad guy. He is a formidable person, and he just lights up the movie. The first thing that comes into mind uh, when you talk about Ray Liotta also is Field of Dreams. Right, mm-hmm. so him as Shoeless Joe Jackson. Every time I picture Ray Liotta, I don't know why my brain always goes to this, but Hannibal and him eating his own brain. Yeah, absolutely. I oh, remember I forgot that about scene. that. Yeah, truly a great loss. And tonight we are going to dedicate this show to Ray Liotta. Rest in peace, buddy. 
You know, Ray Liotta, he had a lengthy process to get on board for this movie. Uh, he was very much wanted by, uh, by Martin Scorsese and uh, Robert De Niro. He was eager to have him as well. But it was Erwin Winkler, the producer, who had a very, very uh, skeptical thought about having him on. And so it would go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And ultimately what changed Winkler's mind was that he and his wife are in a restaurant and coincidentally Ray Liotta is also in the restaurant and he approaches Erwin Winkler and he says, I know that you have doubts about having me in the movie and I would very much like to let you know that I think that I am right and good for this part. And so they talked a little bit and ultimately it it caused Erwin Winkler to change his mind. And after that, he was brought on board. And Did, thank God it happened because, you know, we got what we got. Did you know who he want, who uh, Winkler wanted to cast before Ray Liotta? I forget. He wanted Tom Cruise in the role. And he wanted Madonna as Karen. No. Uh, rumor has it Nicholas Cage, Sean Penn, Alec Baldwin, and John Travolta were all up for the role of Henry Hill. But, you know, thank the lucky stars, we got what we got. Released on September 19, 1990, Goodfellas was directed by Martin Scorsese. Screenplay by Nicholas Pileggi and Martin Scorsese. Based on the book Wise Guy by Nicholas Pileggi. It stars Robert De Niro, Ray Liotta, Joe Pesci, Lorraine Bracco, Paul Servino, and a bunch of other people. Uh, comic book guy, you are notorious for telling us all the time that you are not a big... Well, let's just call it a gangster flick. And if memory serves me correctly, have you seen The Godfather? I have not seen The Godfather movies. And how many, uh, was this your first time watching Goodfellas or this, how many times have you seen it? This was my second official time watching it. And I think part of my problem is a movie like this wants you to take villains, criminals, and make them kind of the heroes of the movie. They want you to like them. And what this movie delivers on, I know Martin Scorsese, that, that was his challenge. His challenge was to take criminals and make them likable. I really think he succeeded. Likable, yes. And I also think entertaining mm -hmm. more so. And this cast is spot fucking on, period. Well, you know, I never root for the bad guys. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, how many times have you seen this there, Enforcer? Oh, golly, golly, golly. I don't know, maybe 10 times. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So not a not a ton, but yeah, I've definitely seen it a lot. But I, I do agree about having uh, these characters, how are they likable? And I think that part of what makes them likable is the approach that is given to us. The allure, the seduction, and the uh, deceptive ease of life that these gangsters are being shown as really pulls us into having them look at look at them as not necessarily being people that we hate. Right. And speaking of which, this is a, a second Martin Scorsese movie that we've reviewed with the same kind of same subject matter, um, but told differently yet very similarly. True. Uh, which one just, you know, off the top of your head, just real quick, which one did you like better? Wolf of Wall Street or Goodfellas? John. Honestly, I'd have to go with Goodfellas. Okay, again. Goodfellas, hand, hands down. Okay, okay. I think even, you know, Ray Liotta was brilliant in this, but Joe Pesci stole the show, and I think that's what gives it 
you know, over the other movie. I, I agree with you to a certain extent. I think he does steal moments and scenes, but De Niro is just as powerful and Ray Liotta holds his fucking own, right? I mean, he is our narrator. He is telling us the story of this film ultimately. And I thought Ray Liotta's performance, uh, I mean, it was absolutely brilliant. It was a shame that uh, he wasn't nominated for an Academy Award. Okay, but what about you? Which one of those two movies is stronger for you? Uh, Goodfellas, probably because it came first. Um, I do like The Wolf of Wall Street. I thought The Wolf of Wall Street was entertaining, and I like the way Martin Scorsese tells a story. Um, I think I got behind the uh, characters a little bit more with uh, Goodfellas because there were more characters to get behind, right? Mm -hmm. In The Wolf of Wall Street, you have DiCaprio and Robbie, right? In... Goodfellas, you have Leota and Bracco. Those are your that's your couple. Uh, in The Wolf of Wall Street, you have actors that we've seen and characters that they kind of give us who they are, stories, this and that. But you don't get a Tommy, you don't get a Jimmy, and you don't get a Polly, right? You don't get that essential uh, core family core of that. Thank you, the family of characters. Uh, so I think uh, Goodfellas is a stronger, stronger movie. I also want to throw out there and give props to Lorraine Bracco. In this male-dominated, like, acted movie with such powerhouses, you know, I know her, when she was coming into this movie, she was afraid that she would not be able to compete with these powerhouses. And I think she did. I think she held her own, and she came out very memorable in this movie. I couldn't agree with you more. Goodfellas was nominated for Best Picture director, supporting actor, supporting actress, adapted screenplay, and film editing. And it wins Best Supporting Actor for Joe Pesci. Let's talk about Pesci for a second. What do you think? I thought he was great. Uh, he originally, when he well, they were looking at him for this movie, they were going to put him in the role of Polly because they thought he was too old to play Tommy. He was about two decades too old to play Tommy. But he basically convinced them got to play the role and i think he stole it it's funny that you say that because i think de niro and pesci are two decades too old to be playing the characters that they are because when they first introduced de, Nir uh, de niro's character i think he says he's like 32 or something and you look at de niro and you go no but you don't care because it's fucking de niro right so mm -hmm. how'd this movie do don this movie was made for $25 million and it brought in $47 million. So I guess back in 1990, that's not a bad haul. I was really surprised to see that it was such a low dollar amount. And, you know, the uh, Oscar going to Dances with Wolves for picture and director, I guess I can understand that because um, Dances with Wolves was a box office smash. And it, uh, it was in the top 10 of the earners for that year. So it was on everybody's tongue. Sure. And having that be like that, I, I I don't know. I guess I thought Goodfellas would have brought in more money, but it didn't. Yeah. And, and speaking of which, Goodfellas is nominated and comes out the same time as Godfather 3. Now, Godfather 3 isn't uh, a huge success like the previous two, mm -hmm. uh, but it does come out when Goodfellas comes out. So do you think maybe the Academy was oversaturated with gangster flicks? See, that's what I was thinking about, too. And maybe that's what ultimately ended up happening, that both of these movies held each other back. Uh, what wins the year before? Uh, for picture, what, uh, so uh, Driving Miss Daisy. Okay. That's right. And okay. then the year after was? 
Silence of the Lambs. Si- okay, well, no- nothing's going to be Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> Nothing of that previous two years is going to be Silence of the Lambs. Agreed. Uh, do you think, uh, so Godfather 3 and Goodfellas were both nominated for Best Picture. Let's say they're nominated against uh, uh, Driving Miss Daisy. Who do you think wins? Do you think Driving Miss Daisy still wins? I, no. No, it can't. Not not against those two. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I just... Boy, it, it would be really interesting to have those two go head to head. What, The Godfather 3 and Goodfellas? Yeah. It, oh, Goodfellas is so much better of a movie. See, I think so too, but it, it's worth talking about. Yeah, well, I mean, because it's, Godfather, it's part of that trilogy. It is, but it also gets panned and it, the story is very convoluted. And, and there's a, a newer cutout that uh, Francis Ford Coppola put out, which I'm curious to see. But out of all of the Godfather movies, 3 is easily the weakest. And I think it is. I don't think it compares to Goodfellas. I think I think Goodfellas compares to either the first or second Godfather for top mob movie of all time. That's how good I think Goodfellas is. I I, I I'm willing to say that I think Goodfellas is the best. It, it's the number one mob movie. Yeah, over mm-hmm. over Godfather. Yeah, definitely in the discussion. And I would argue that they're different types of mob movies. Oh yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, Godfather is very much a slow burn and very story driven whereas goodfellas is story driven don't get me wrong but it's not a slow burn because scorsese can tell a really good story uh in his way and you know you're watching a martin scorsese movie when you see it well scorsese actually said the reason why this movie works and why the book wise guys wise guys sold so well was other mob movies you're usually looking at the story from the boss point of view you're looking at the guys who are leading the mob leading the mafia that kind of situation this is one of the first times we get to see a view from a knockaround guy a guy from the beginning working his way up and he's not the top dog he is the guy they send out to do missions so that's why this was a much different version of a gangster movie than we had seen before who the fuck is this guy saying knock around these knock around guys. He doesn't even like gangster shit. Look at you. <laughs> but that's 100% correct. Hey, you know? don't go busting my balls. No. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it, it's definitely told through one of the knock around guys' point of view. And that's what Scorsese wanted. He was fascinated by the minutiae of day to day life, the inner workings of how and why things worked for the mafia life. Scorsese's young life, he was kind of a recluse and he was an observer. He was always sitting at the window watching daily life and that daily life, how and why things went throughout the day, what left an indelible mark on him. And there are definitely shadows of his memories that sprinkled that are sprinkled throughout the movie. He very much enjoys getting to know why is it like this or how do they do that and how do they handle those routines or procedures and so that was what drew him to this book in the first place i also want to talk about the editors for this movie they got nominated for uh editing and uh, that was uh, james Kui and then thelma a schoonmaker she has eight nominations to her name and she's won three oscars she won it for the departed the Ad- the aviator and raging bull and i thought that she has a very very good grip on what Scorsese is doing in this movie. And the two of them, I think, worked some beautiful magic in how they put this story together. So I want to give big props to her. Oh, absolutely. It's it's amazing that you find directors that like to work with certain editors, and it certainly shows. Um, 
you know, Tarantino had his uh, editor before she passed away and Spielberg has his and Lucas has his blah, blah, blah. But Schoonmaker and Scorsese, uh, they were such a dynamic duo. And every film that you watch, uh, you can definitely feel the impact of her editing. And she's she's one of my favorite editors uh, to this day. So how many movies have De Niro and Pesci worked together on? Uh, De Niro and Pesci? Um, okay, I'm not looking at any lists. I am going to try and go by memory. Raging Bull, Goodfellas, The Irishman. How many am I short? I thought it was six, and I did not count I did not count The Irishman. All right, so, so that we'll, would be seven. So there's Goodfellas, there's Casino. God, fucking Casino. Raging Bull. Once Upon a Time in America, Bronx Tale, Good Shepherd. Oh, and The Irishman. <laughs> the Irishman. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was also directed by Martin Scorsese. So, so how many times have Robert De Niro and Martin Scorsese worked together? What, what, how many movies have they had, do you think? Guesses, John? I can only think of two off the top of my head. So I'm going to say five. Maybe three because you mentioned one. Mean Streets. Taxi Driver, New York, New York, Raging Bull, Kings of Comedy, Goodfellas, Cape Fear, Casino, The Irishman. Nine. Nine wow. times. Nine times. Yeah. Nine times. That's a director-actor combo that, you know, kind of yeah. ruled their day. Going back to the well works. Yeah, well, fuck, it's De Niro, right? I wanted to ask you guys what you thought of the music in this. Uh, the music in... Are you talking about the score or are you talking about the needle drops? Just the, even the needle drops. Um, Was there even a score? Well, yeah, there is. There's something like 43 clips of music in this. Yeah, it it definitely puts you into the time period. And I was thinking about that from the opening credits all the way to the ending credits. You open with Rags to Riches, and then you end with My Way, sung by the Sex Pistols. Yeah, the Sex Pistols. Well, what I loved is watching the behind the scenes on this. The author, Nicholas, working with Martin Scorsese to write, you know, the write the screenplay for this. He talked about Martin's just amazing ability to play music or bring up a song while they were writing a scene, and he knew exactly the song he wanted to fit into each scene while they were actually typing it out. And an example he gave was that Cream song. You know, Martin Scorsese was mouthing the words and singing that song while they were writing that scene. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Oh, real quick thing. Ironic about the Academy Awards that... um Robert De Niro did get nominated uh, for the Oscar that year for acting. For Awakenings. For Awakenings. Yeah. Not for Goodfellas. Maybe that's why they didn't nominate him for Goodfellas, too. Maybe like, oh, he's too good. In 1955, youngster Henry Hill becomes enamored by the criminal life and mafia presence in his working-class Italian-American neighborhood in Brooklyn. He begins working for a local gangster, Polly Cicero, and his associates, Jimmy the Gent Conway, an Irish-American truck hijacker and gangster, and Tommy DeVito, a fellow juvenile delinquent. Henry begins as a fence for Jimmy, gradually working his way up to the more serious crimes. The three associates spend most of their nights in the 1960s at the Copacabana nightclub carousing with women. Henry starts dating Karen Friedman, a Jewish woman who is initially troubled by Henry's criminal activities. Seduced by Henry's glamorous lifestyle, she marries him despite her parents' disapproval. So we open on, I guess, your standard credits. We have uh, some text flying by, but we hear that you're in a car. 
And then we cut to Ray Liotta, Joe Pesci, and Robert De Niro driving somewhere, and we hear thumping. And then, uh, you know, they start asking each other, what the fuck's going on? What is that? What is that? Uh, and they're coming up with all sorts of things, right? Did I hit something? Do I have a flat? My question is, how the fuck do you not know if you hit something? But I digress. So they pull over, open the trunk, and in classic gangster mobster style, there's a body in there. A bloody body. Yeah. And then uh, they have to finish the job. And then when that's all done, Ray Liotta closes the trunk and that famous quote, you know, as far back as he could remember, he's always wanted to be a gangster. And then we get the opening credits and now we are thrown right into the right into the story what'd you think of that opening that kind of that violence that we get right in the beginning of the movie i kind of come to expect it in a gangster flick um it doesn't surprise me it pulls me in and i mean with those three how could it not i mean just their sure presence well i guess for the producers especially when they did their first test screening of that when that scene happened like 10 or 15 people in the theater got up and just walked out it was too violent for them by the time that the movie had gotten in just a little bit farther, half of the audience had left the test screening with the comments of, it's just too violent. So they were seriously worried. Martin Scorsese stuck to his guns and said, I'm not changing a thing. And it worked out for him. So after the opening credits, we uh, are introduced to Henry Hill as a teenager. And he is uh, telling us about his life. And, and we're going to find out that Ray Liotta is going to narrate pretty much throughout this entire film. And he's going to be our narrator. And, you know, because the story is being told through his point of view, uh, chances are he's going to try and make things look better than they actually were. That was one of my concerns is we're getting the narration from Henry Hill. Is he a reliable narrator? Are we getting the true story? But if you look beyond it, you're looking more at what the story is about rather than who's telling it. Yeah. And you know what? As far as him being an unreliable narrator, well, yeah, he's a fucking mobster. You know what I mean? You, you, I wouldn't trust anything that came out of this fucking guy's mouth. But for me, personally, I don't care because it's, it's a fun ride and I'm engrossed. And the story he's telling us... Uh, especially as a youngster, it, it's kind of fun to see him come up. And I mean, obviously it was a different time as the 1950s. Right. And he goes into, um, he goes into the story of how he gets the job at, uh, the, taxi cab stand at the taxi cab stand and how his dad's always pissed off because his brother's in a wheelchair there's seven of them living in this small place but most of all he was just pissed and uh the more and more jobs that henry does for this taxi cab the more and more clout he gets rising up through the ranks you know he starts by parking the cadillacs at 14 um i, I like the bit where because he's been skipping school all this time uh his dad is asking him, you know, how was school? Was school good? And Henry's just kind of playing it off, but it turns out that <laughs> Henry hadn't been there for a month, so his dad beats the shit out of him, right? And then he, the, we cut to him telling Tootie, the guy who runs the cab stand, that he can't, he can't work for him no more. And instead of finding a new kid or whatever, what do they do? They go find the mailman. <laughs> they go find the mailman. Uh, could you imagine? That's crazy. I loved how they just commented that, you know, no more of those school letters arrived at home. Then again, no more mail arrived at home. Yeah. And, and finally, his mom had to go down and complain. And pick up her mail. 
Yeah. So the, uh, the the storytelling that we get, this is something that is a part of that lifestyle, if you will. These these people are they are not well educated people, and when they came over to America, they came over typically without any passport, which is where that term WAP comes from, without passport. And these people that are illiterate and not necessarily uh, educated people spent little to no time in school. What they end up having that they grow with is a sense of storytelling. And being a good and effective storyteller is how these people enjoy sharing and, uh, and, and, and letting each other know about who they are and, and what they uh, like. And so Henry is one of these people that picks up on this type of dialogue. And this is the narration that we are getting, that he is he's sort of this seductive storyteller. And he's looking back on his life with, you know, a, a sense of fondness. And, you know, he admitted that he liked that life and he didn't want to leave that life. And so I think that there's going to be a natural inclination that he is going to, you know, uh, gloss over things that are the less glamorous or the seedier side of himself. So I, I, I understand why it's not in there. And for him to be telling us the story the way that he does, it's just how these people are in their in their lifestyle. They're good storytellers. The level of narration in this movie, uh, do you first of all, do you think the, the narration was necessary? Do you think that it was enough or do you think it was a little too much? Oh, I thought it was perfect. Did you think it was perfect? I, it didn't bother me because uh, he, we establish it early on. Mm-hmm. If you don't, if you establish something early on and you follow through with it, it makes sense. But if you introduce something and then make it disappear, it, it kind of, it, it, you notice it. Right. Mm-hmm. Or if you don't introduce it and then out of nowhere, it just kind of comes on, it comes at you, you notice it. With this one, I thought it was perfect because it was from the beginning and it went with us all the way through till the end. Mm-hmm. This is the point in the film. Also, uh, you know, uh, Henry is working for the cab stand, but he's also uh, at the parties and, and they're like casino nights or whatever. It's just they're just having a good time serving drinks. And then this is where we get introduced to Jimmy the Gent Conway. Robert fucking De Niro. And as soon as the door opens and he comes in, his presence just takes over the screen and that smile and then just his arrogance and then just his swagger. I mean, Robert De Niro was the fucking man, still is the fucking man, but in the 90s, he was at the fucking top. Early on for me, when we get introduced to Polly versus Jimmy, I almost felt like Jimmy stole the air from the room. Like he seemed like he should be the top boss. And there was then Polly. But see, that's why I think they played it perfectly. Because when they introduced Polly, I like how he says, uh, Polly rarely moved because Polly didn't have to move for anybody. And when they, when you meet, when you see Polly and Jimmy together, there's that respect, right? And Jimmy fully knows his place because he can't be made. He can't be a made guy uh, because of his Irish uh, heritage. But Polly. Polly has that presence and he just looks like the Don. He looks like the boss. And I just, I don't know if De Niro overshadows him, but I think that they play so well with each other that um, I just think it really worked. I guess from what I read, uh, Paul Servino, like 48 hours before they started uh, filming, backed out. 
because he did not think that he was going to be able to deliver compared to these other great castings. And he said that he was really nervous about it. He was looking in the mirror. He put on a suit. He did the tie. And as soon as he did the tie, he goes, I'm a mobster. I'm a gangster. I can do this. And he fucking pulls it off. Yeah, Paul I, Servino definitely, uh, definitely was the fucking boss. The other thing that helped him, he so much wanted to... He, he so much wanted to work with Martin Scorsese that uh, he just convinced himself, I can do this, I can do this. And then he was out one night and he startled himself. He actually jumped back a little bit. He saw this look that he gave because he was perturbed about something or other. And he's like, that's the look. That's the look I have to have. And then from there, he said, everything else just fell into place. Once I found that look, that presence that I needed to have, that was how I was able to build. So now we're introduced to Jimmy the Gent, and he's going to start having Henry work for him. And at the same time, he's going to introduce him to a young Tommy DeVito. So then we get the, uh, we see all the contraband that's being sold, and then we see Henry get pinched. And Tommy just takes off, and I love he runs into the pizzeria or wherever they're at, tells Tootie. Tootie immediately gets up, and now we cut to him. We're in court. And I think this is one of my favorite scenes. The bit between, uh, <laughs> well, first of all, uh, the judge calls Henry up, and he walks all the way up to the, the stand. Yeah, I loved his smirk on his totally, face. Totally, right? And then the lawyer's like, get back here, you dumb fuck. And then, you know, they do the whole thing. But this this scene with Robert De Niro and the kid, and he says... Uh, learn two of the greatest things. He says, Jimmy, I thought you'd be mad. He goes, no, I'm not mad. I'm proud of you. You'd learn two good things today. Two of the greatest things in life. Two of the greatest things in life. One, don't ever rat on your friends. And two, always, always keep your mouth shut. And then they take him out. And everyone's waiting for him. Polly, Cherry, yeah, Polly, and all the boys are waiting for him. And and I felt like that that was his true introduction into this family. And they knew that he could be trusted for now. Uh, but you know that it was a great transition between that and then now we meet Henry Hill as an adult. And it had to give him that invincible feeling that you know no matter what he does, he's just going to walk away as long as he follows the rules. Yeah. Well, I mean, he he went he did time. He did a couple of days in oh, did he? the juvie, but he didn't say nothing and they got nothing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And we get what ultimately is going to be the downfall of Henry. He ratted on his friends and he didn't and, keep his mouth right, shut. And he didn't keep his mouth shut. What yeah. was that? Foreshadowing? Oh, for fuck's sake. Now we're at, into 1963 and we're introduced to an adult, Henry Hill. Yeah. And... The, the interactions between uh, Tommy and Henry, I really like uh, on this one because uh, we get introduced to their day-to-day and, um, you know, this is where we get the whole funny bit. They're at the bar and then the, the bar owner or the Copacabana owner comes over and says, Tommy, you owe me all this money. And he's mm-hmm. like, you're embarrassing me. And then the owner goes to Polly and he's saying, you know, you got to help me out. Yeah, help me out. You notice that I think... Paul Paul Servino only had like six lines in this entire film, but he said them a thousand times. What do you want me to do? What am I going to do? <laughs> I think I'm just going to do that to you guys for the rest of the podcast. That's fine. What do you want me to do? What what, what can I do? What can I do? So Polly goes in uh, and buys the the bamboo co- lounge. The bamboo lounge, right? And uh, you know, I, I did love that walkthrough, that steady cam walkthrough. How many people were we introduced to? What do you think, six, J- seven. What do you think, John? 
Gosh, I think it was more than that. I think it was like 12, 13. I mean, he, they named off a ton of people. I counted nine. 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 Yeah. 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 But yeah, it, it's a great walkthrough. And it gets repeated later on. It but, does. But in a more stylish way, I mm-hmm. guess you could say. But we're coming up to that. And then we get another steady cam shot right after that where it shows everybody, all those same people sitting at a dinner table all together and they're all talking. Uh, and so uh, back to the bamboo lounge. Tommy and Henry uh, rig the place to blow or they're going to set it on fire and they're sitting in the car. I think this is one of my favorite exchanges between the two. So uh, Tommy's complaining that he's trying to bang this broad and, you know, he keeps going on and on. And before he can say anything, Henry's like, no. And then Tommy does this whole, what do you mean? No, you don't even know what I'm going to ask you, Henry. How are you going to say no? And Henry's like, now I know what you're going to ask me. And he's <laughs> I'm trying to ask you a favor here. I'm trying to bang this broad. <laughs> I know that's horrible, but it's funny. Um, and so finally, uh, Tommy says, uh, I got to go on a double date and I need you. And, and he was like, see, I told you, I told you this was going to happen. And then uh, it turns out that the double date is with uh, Karen Friedman played by Lorraine Bracco. And this is where Karen and Henry uh, meet for the first time and this date doesn't go very well it's a lousy date the first two dates because he didn't he stands her up on the second date. yes he does and i thought it was so funny my favorite part of this whole little sequence is at the end of the date when uh he's leaving and he drives her home he walks her up not even all the way to the porch but like up the driveway and then the look he gives her and then just he waves his he waves her off with his hand and he takes off i thought that was just so funny but then henry stands her up and, you know, Tommy's making excuses. I don't know. He doesn't talk to me, blah, blah, blah. And then I love, and now we get Karen's narration. So now we have two narrators of this film. Um, Karen starts saying, you know, I really didn't like him. He was fucking arrogant and he was just kind of a jerk. And then the bit where he stands her up and she says, well, I made Tommy to go. I made Tommy take me to find him. What'd you guys think of the scene when she pulls up and starts calling him on his shit? When she busts his balls. I really enjoyed it. She uh, she showed grit and moxie. She couldn't care less about him being surrounded by all of his friends. Nope, I'm going to take you down right in front of everybody. And what does he do? He fucking digs it, and he takes her out. And now we get this long. Now we get the shot that we've been talking about. This long introduction. He takes her to the Copacabana Club. I think that's the Copacabana mm-hmm. Club, right? Yep. He takes her to the Copacabana Club, but they don't stand in line. They go around the back, and the camera follows us from the entrance through the kitchen, all through the restaurant to where they walk out and then they just pop a table in the front row and sit him down. And the look that she gives him when she says, what do you do? She is absolutely amazed and she is intoxicated with this lifestyle. I'm in construction. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the go-to always with... uh, with the mob right they were always in construction i guess with this scene it actually was set up in the beginning because they weren't allowed to film coming in through the front door for some reason so they decided to go in through the back door and do this big long take and i've seen a couple of different arguments whether it took seven times or eight times for them to actually film the scene one time they got all the way through everything was perfect and henny youngman at the end forgot his line take my wife please when they shot that scene, it's almost four minutes. The first three minutes of it, uh, it's the song, and then he kissed me. Yeah. And the song ends right when she says, "What do you do?" Yeah. And then, uh, and and then after that, then we have that last little bit, you know, with uh, 
you know, uh, the comedian bit. But what I dug about that scene was it is just so beautifully shot. It's a, it's a slice of life that we get to walk through. And I watched it this last time around because it seems like a maze that we go through. And actually, it's uh, you go into the kitchen and then it's four right turns and then we end up right back where we started. But the entrance was right next to where they came in, but they just cut that part out and we didn't see it. Oh, interesting. It, yeah, it, it was interesting to watch. They go in and they do four right turns right back to where they started. Yeah, this shot is so amazing. I don't think you can take a film class these days without them bringing up that shot. So uh, Karen loves the life and uh, they she go out on a... seduced into the life there, basically. Uh, what? She is basically at that point seduced into the life. Yeah, and then uh, they go like to a tennis club or something, and they have uh, drinks or lunch or whatever. And we, we meet get, slimy Bruce. We get introduced to a character named Bruce who lives across the street, uh, and then we go. We cut to another scene, and this is where we meet Murray. Murray is one of the cohorts of the of the gang, and he sells toupees. And he's always busting Jimmy's balls. He he thinks that Jimmy owes him money, and he's always, always, you know, Jimmy, I need my money. Jimmy, I need my money. And Henry is always playing the peacekeeper. And this is going to be a, a, a theme throughout the movie with these three characters. And it's at this scene where he Murray is just talking mad shit about Jimmy. And then Jimmy comes around and starts choking him with the fucking phone cord. And do you notice, as soon as his toupee flips off, Ray Liotta starts just laughing laugh really hard like we just watched this commercial saying you could jump in the water and then just the slightest tug of a fucking phone cord and it flies off so that was kind of funny so anyways we get a phone call and when he picks up and he's talking to karen what's jimmy saying give me the fucking money yeah, yeah. <laughs> give me the fucking money give me the fucking money construction construction <laughs> hmm. so karen calls him and she is in hysterics because apparently bruce the cro- uh bruce the neighbor was getting a little handsy with her and shoved her out of the and car. shoved her out of the car. So uh, Henry picks her up. And I really dug this scene, too, because the con- <laughs> I don't know, and I don't know what that says about me, but uh, he's very calm in the car, asks her if she's okay. She goes into the house, and then he's looking. He's watching the guys in the rearview mirror because they're, Bruce lives across the street, and they're outside working on the fucking car. And uh, he gets his gun, puts it in his waist, walks over there. And I'd love... I love this whole exchange because Bruce says, well, what do you want, fucko? Yeah, what are you going to do about it or something like that? And uh, he takes out the fucking gun and just pistol whips him and just keeps beating the shit out of him. And it was I love the reaction of the two friends that are watching. They can't believe what's going on. And then when he gets up, you know, he points the gun at them and they're just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And he turns away and, and then that's the moment that, I mean, Karen even admits. I mean, she... She's not sure that, you know, what he does or if even if it's legal, this, that, and the other. She's watching. Yeah, but she's definitely watching. She said and she was turned on. And she said most girls, as soon as their boyfriend gave him a gun to hide, would run. But she said, nope. He gives her a bloodied gun. And she says it turned her on. And then they get married. And this, this is a great scene, too. And it kind of shows just the culture and the lifestyle of uh, the mob at the time. Uh, I like how she says, you know, I never met so many people in my life and they were all either named Peter or Paul and all, they were all married to a girl named Marie and you have Polly introducing, you know, and this is Polly, this is Petey, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I liked how Polly at one point even says, he goes, oh, this is Pete. Uh, even I get it wrong. Yeah. 
in these moments as well, we are also getting more of Karen's perspective about Henry and Henry's life. And uh, I, I thought that it was rather telling that she thought it was so impressive about how everybody wanted to be nice to him and how effortlessly he seemed to handle all of this attention. And he he seemed to know how to handle all this when he's only like 21 years old. And, and having that happen, you know, I, I, I felt like that that's her, you know, continuing to fall deeper and deeper into anything that he does. She just accepts it, right? To, to watch the pistol whipping and, and then to just have, you know, all of this ridiculous lifestyle and she's okay. And yeah. And then they get married. Yeah. So, okay. She's in, she knows what she's getting into. Yeah. She knows what she signed up for. One thing I thought I was thinking about, especially like during this scene is, you know, they're getting handed all those envelopes of money and, you know, Henry Hill has said that, you know, when he was working for the mob and all that, he was pulling down, you know, pulling like $15,000 a week sometimes. I mean, just crazy amounts of money. Where did all that money go? Well, I guess the real Henry Hill has said that he had a horrible gambling problem. And so that's why he always seemed like he was out of money. And then we get Karen after the wedding, you know, who stays out all night? He's with his friends. Oh my God, that was such a great exchange. And then when he comes home and he the look he gives Karen, because he opens, they open the door and the mother-in-law immediately goes into him. And then Karen goes in on the mother-in-law like, Ma! And then the look he gives, he, and then my <laughs> he laughs all the way back to Tommy's car. And Tommy's like, Henry, what kind of husband are you? Just making fun of him. Uh, such a good bit. Can I just such confirm? And this is coming from a Jewish guy. That is a Jewish mother. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, that that's expected. I didn't see anything wrong with that scene. Oh, no, there's nothing wrong with it. I just thought it was funny. I thought it was funny as shit. Because Henry's just like, fuck this. It just walks off. And then we spend more time with Karen, and she gets to meet the girls. And then we get to hear about how they spend all of their time together. Vacations and birthdays. And just how they spend only time only with each other and then we get one last scene which i thought was a delightful scene henry's heading out in the morning and karen says i want to go shopping can i get some money how much do you need this this much i love how she holds up her fingers to show how much money she needs and she fucking got it yeah. Yeah. well at first he did he gave her just a smaller stack and then you see her slowly, her head start going down, and he's like, oh, okay, that's how we're going to do this. Yeah, well, <laughs> that sounds like a fantastic morning to me. And this is pretty much the last of the happy times of the movie. Now the story starts to get gritty. Yeah, well, I mean, what goes up must come down. In 1970, Billy Batts, a made man in the Gambino crime family who has recently been released from prison, repeatedly insults Tommy at a nightclub owned by Henry. Tommy and Jimmy beat, stab, and fatally shoot Billy. The unsanctioned murder of a made man invites retribution. Realizing this, Jimmy, Henry, and Tommy bury the body in upstate New York. Six months later, however, Jimmy learns that the burial site is slated for development, prompting them to exhume and relocate the decomposing corpse. In 1974, Karen harasses henry's mistress janice and threatens henry at gunpoint henry moves in with janice but Polly insists that he should return to karen after collecting a debt from a gambler in tampa with jimmy 
Upon returning, Jimmy and Henry are arrested after being turned in by the gambler's sister, an FBI typist, and they receive a 10-year prison sentence. To support his family on the outside, Henry has Karen smuggle in drugs and sell them to the fellow inmates from Pittsburgh. This scene here where they are at the restaurant that uh, Henry owns and we meet uh, Billy, Billy Batts, uh, he just gets... He, just got out of prison he's having a good time and obviously he knows henry he knows jimmy and then tommy walks in and we get the sense that tommy used to work for billy or you know tommy was way younger when billy was around and uh billy starts fucking with him a little bit right and we know as an audience that uh tommy's demeanor and character and ego won't let this slide you know, so they kind of go back and forth, and and um, Bats repeatedly uh, embarrasses Tommy in front of his friends or whatnot, and finally he says something, you know, go back and get your fucking shine box, and uh, Tommy loses it, and I love what he tells Henry as he's taking the girl out. He's all, keep him here, keep him here, you know, and we know that Billy's a made man, and we know that you cannot whack a made man unless you have permission, and to get permission, it's a long fucking process. Right. So we know somewhere along the line, shit's going to go south. What I thought was interesting is, you know, they kind of bring that up. Like you just mentioned that you can't do anything to a made man. And later on in the movie, when they're talking about Tommy becoming a made man, they say one of the best things about being a made man is you can fuck with everybody and they can't fuck with you. That's right. So they know that they know that the made man's that's, that's one of the perks of it. You can screw with people yet. Tommy cannot take this Billy screwing with him. No, he can't. It's it's ego, right? And I like when um, I like when Tommy leaves, and then Billy is kind of talking with Henry and Jimmy, and he's all, you know, Jimmy, he was way fucking out of line, right? And I like how De Niro's like, uh, yeah, well, you you were a little out of line too, just a little bit. And then he's all, yeah, but and, and De Niro just keeps saying eh, a little bit, a little bit in his De Niro way. And mm-hmm. it's, it's just fucking brilliant. That was classic De Niro. Yeah, absolutely. Classic what? De Niro. Mm, close enough. Um, so Tommy comes back and immediately they go to work on Billy bats. And that, <laughs> I mean, you're going to kill a made guy. I mean, there's going to be retribution, right? So, and I like what Tommy said after they're beating the hell out of this guy, just stomping on his face and everything. And Tommy goes, I'm, I'm sorry I got blood on your floor. Yeah, it was kind of a weird... It was kind of weird, right? I mean, he was... He's a bit of a sociopath. A little bit, right? And so they they take Billy Bats, they put him in the trunk of Henry's car, and they start driving. And now we're kind of... We're back at the beginning of the film. And, you know, they have to go bury the body, so they need a shovel. And so they go to Tommy's mom's, uh, and Tommy's mom makes dinner for everybody because it's a classic italian mom fucking midnight played by who uh that's martin scorsese's mother yeah yeah and uh you know he's saying uh we hit a deer because they're covered in blood blood and, and the hoof it's it's stuck in the grill you know the the foot thing they, you know, one, <laughs> so one, they have to take a butcher knife yeah. one of the great things about martin scorsese is they call him an actor's director because he lets the actors just improvise things and improvise lines. And I guess the majority of that whole scene at, at the mom's house was completely improvised. She, it kind of sounds improvised a little bit, maybe. I don't know. Uh, the whole thing about the painting with the dogs. Yeah, the painting of the dogs was actually done by the author's mother. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, she keeps telling Henry, you don't talk much. And, you know, she's just being a typical mom. Yeah. They made up the whole hoof story just on the spot. That's awesome. They go to bury the body and then we hear the thumping in the trunk and we get the scene that we saw at the opening of the film. And then, uh, you know, that's that for Billy Bats. There's one thing that, you know, kind of bothers me in this is that the real Henry Hill has admitted he went on the Howard Stern show and was answering some questions and has admitted that he has killed people. He's killed at least three people that he confirmed. He says his immunity deal allows him to talk about that. Yet you notice in a scene like this where, you know, Tommy and Jimmy, you know, Tommy's sitting there stabbing the body in the trunk and Jimmy's shooting the body in the trunk. You know, Henry Hill's in the background with his hands up kind of backed off. Like he's not going to be part of this. Why does that bother you? Because I would think Henry was probably involved in it too. But you notice a lot of the murder scenes throughout this movie, even though he's admitted he's murdered people, uh, he's always hands off. You don't see him really murder anybody in this movie. Okay, but he came clean about that after the movie was out. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess all I can say to that is fucking cares. Yeah. Because when you watch it, uh, having De Niro and Pesci go in on this guy and Ray Liotta just kind of staying back makes sense. You know what I mean? Cinematically. Mm -hmm. uh, did he? Did the real Henry Hill kill people? Of course he did, right? There's, there's no doubt in my mind. Gangsters were gangsters. But, um, yeah, I, I just kind of go along with it. And so... Yeah, it didn't bug me. So right after this scene, then we get to meet Spider. Spider is the kid that Henry Hill used to be. You know, he was he, he's the guy that got the drinks, got the sandwiches and such. And uh, when I saw it, oh, hey, he's in The Sopranos. Michael Improbably or something like that. Impoli? Impoli? He was actually, when he auditioned for the movie, he was going to play Tommy. They had all set up that he was going to be Tommy, and Joe Pesci convinced the director to put him in as Tommy, and so that's why he got the spider role. Yeah, well, I, it's a completely different movie if this kid gets uh, the Tommy role. But, um, yeah, I love this scene because, you know, Tommy's just talking shit, and he's just being an asshole. And Spider, he's just trying, he's just trying to get some drinks, right? He's just trying to do his job. And then Tommy wants to be funny and pulls out his gun and he shoots him in the fucking foot, which is going to lead us to, you know, another scene where Spider is okay. And uh, he comes with his foot wrapped up. And I think this is this bit with Spider, this second bit with Spider, I think is one of my favorite scenes as well, because, you know, Tommy keeps talking shit, talking shit. And Spider's all, why don't you go fuck yourself, Tommy? And De Niro's reaction to what just happened is it's fucking priceless. Well, I think this also shows a good example of the difference as, you know, here's this character, Spider, as you mentioned, Professor, filling Henry's role that he did as a kid. And, you know, the way that Henry would have, as a kid, would have handled it. He was very respectful as a kid. And anytime anybody said anything to him, he ran. He didn't question it. He ran to the, you know, do ran back. He held umbrellas for people. He did all that. Spider, yeah, he's not as smart as Henry and he mouths off and it ends up unfortunate for him. Yeah, so fucking Tommy shoots him. <laughs> when uh, Joe Pesci was doing that scene, he said that he had to take some time and get into his head. What is it like if I actually kill somebody? I'm killing somebody. And so he uh, instructed the uh, the props to have, uh, he wanted, he wanted uh, the gun to not be 
uh, any different. He wanted it to be nice and loud, and he thought that the the sound of the silence after the last shot is fired was more deafening than the sound of the shots. Sure, sure. Uh, he shoots Spider, and then everyone gets mad at him, and I love De Niro's uh, reaction to this. What the fuck is wrong with you? I was fucking kidding. You fucking maniac. And then uh, he looks at me and goes, you're going to dig the fucking hole because I don't got any lime. You're going to dig the fucking hole. Not the first time I dug a hole. Yeah. And oh, fucking so good. Yeah. I, I thought that having um, th- this scene in here, just watching uh, Tommy go off. This is something that we have already seen a little bit before. The bit in the beginning in the Copacabana Club, I amuse you. I'm funny like a clown in that moment. That's where we get that first real glimpse that... What is he going to do? And I feel like this movie has many moments in it that has what is going to happen next because you just don't know. Yeah, Tommy's character is very unpredictable and sometimes you feel uneasy when he's on screen and that's exactly what he was meant to do and that's exactly what happened. Yeah, I mean, you don't expect him... You know, yeah, he shot at the guy's feet to make him dance. You don't know if that was on purpose, whether you know he was just screwing around. I did not expect him to kill Spider. So, and during all of this, uh, Billy Bat's disappearance is uh, being noticed by people. And so Polly comes up to Henry and says, I love the way they talk to each other. Uh, what'd you hear about that thing? What thing? Oh, you mean the thing with the guy? Yeah, no, the, the thing with the guy who disappeared, you know, upstate. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The thing, what'd you hear? Uh, nothing. Uh, he came into the club. And so Henry's a lot, bullface lying to Polly right now because he knows what happened. And then uh, later on, uh, Jimmy comes up to uh, Henry and says, you know that thing we took care of uh, upstate? You know that thing? Yeah. We got to move it. Why? Because they're digging. They're going to find it. (laughs) And so this is is the bit where um, they have to go back and dig up the fucking body. I love just the the smell, the reaction to the smell that Henry's hey, having. Henry, I found an arm. I found a leg. And then, just, and then later I on. I found a wing. When he's hosing out the back of his car and he's like, I hit a skunk, leave it. Yeah. Hey, oh, my God. It was, and then just the reaction from the wife and the little girls. Ew. Sprinkled in during these times, we also have uh, an escalation of tension between Karen and Henry. Karen is aware of the mistress, and eventually she goes and confronts the mistress, and it culminates to that one shot of Karen sitting on top of Henry with the gun barrel pointed right at the camera. Oh, my God. Could you imagine waking up looking no. at the barrel of a gun? And she was fucking pissed, right? She was going to fucking do it. Maybe. I don't know. But the way Henry talks her down. He escalates. He's he's very calm. And he's like, no, I love you. Right? And then. uh, Until he gets the gun away from her. Yeah. And then he's he's holding her hair and putting the gun in her face. And he says, uh, like, I don't have enough to worry about getting whacked on the streets. I got to get. I got to come home and possibly get whacked too. What the fuck? And um, yeah, it's a powerful, powerful fucking scene. And at the end, when she, when he leaves, and she just starts sobbing and starts going, "I'm sorry, I'm sorry, guys." It was just a, it was just a, a powerful moment. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? I thought that it was shot magnificently, having that gun barrel, and then the the focus from the edge of the barrel to her eyes, down to Ray, we're looking right over the barrel, 
and then eventually the camera is back and then we just watch that moment of rage from Henry you know just completely you know tearing apart his wife for almost potentially having shot him it was it's such a brutal scene to watch yeah absolutely you know just like any uh monster film uh, henry says you know uh saturday nights were for the wives but friday, friday nights mm-hmm. were for the girlfriends and so we know that uh they had some goombas that's what they were called um uh, along this time and so henry goes to stay with janice and we get Karen going to her her apartment, Janice's apartment, and pressing all the buttons saying, I want to tell everybody that in 32D, there you have a whore living there. Janice DeRossi, you're a whore. And, you know, it just she just escalates it. And the, those poor kids. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, immediately after this, then we have him going down to Florida. They whack they're roughing up a guy that turns out to be a sister of the FBI typist. typist. But uh, do you notice again what Jimmy's saying in the back while they're choking him? Mm-mm. Give us our fucking money. Oh, yeah. Give us our fucking money. Right. And I just so, love how they hold him over the lion's cage. Yeah. Well, they're going to feed him through the fucking lions. <laughs> it's like, we can't get him all the way to the lion. Well, we're just going to drop him in the moat. Yeah. And I, and I like uh, uh, Leota's uh, deliverance of the narration here. And wouldn't it just be our luck that the guy we roughed up was, you know, the sister of the FBI typist and we were picked up right away. They kind of go, they have this party and, you know, Karen's just distraught and he gets into the limo, pops his pills. And I love what he says. Now take me to prison. Oh my gosh. This whole montage, 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 montage that happens during the prison life, you know, and. And the whole bit about, you know, uh, the, the prison dinner, you know, what life is like on the inside. It, I love this scene. It, it's like a new introduction to something that we've kind of seen, but in a different element, right? It's, it's the same lifestyle, just in a different setting. And so we are reintroduced to uh, what it's like to be a wise guy. And, and we get, uh, you know, Henry is... Uh, doing his thing, smuggling his drugs. And he says the biggest part of the day in jail is the dinner. And we get introduced to, you know, Polly making the sauce or it wasn't Polly who made the sauce. Someone else makes the sauce. It's, it's a uh, Scorsese's dad. Is that who's making the sauce? Yeah. He uses the razor blades with the That's garlic. Polly. Polly Polly's the razor, but he, the other guy, the dad's mixing the sauce. Yeah. <laughs> Don't put too many onions. That's what he Three says. Three onions. That That's enough. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, how many? And then in the background, you hear, well, how many cans of tomato sauce are you? I'm not sure why, but uh, Paul Sorvino said that this was his favorite scene to film. Oh, I can. He I, just said that it, it's the scene that felt most like family. I can see that. I can see that. You know, because, you know, <laughs> they're all in their bathrobes and they're making steak and pasta. And if anything, did you guys want to eat pasta or mm-hmm. have some Italian oh, yeah. food after you watch this? Mm-hmm. Fuck yeah, right? Those sausages looked amazing. Yeah, they, well, sausages always look amazing to you. Uh, so they eat, Henry comes in, he brings the loaf of bread and the wine, and I love Polly's reaction. Okay, now we can eat. You know, they got the wine. And so we go through and we see that uh, Henry is making a living on the side because he's got to keep things going. And then um, he's doing drugs. And then Karen comes to visit him Mm -hmm. and she sees on the sign in sheet that Janice has been there. And so she starts throwing a fit in the um, 
waiting room or the visitation rooms. And she's like, no one's taking care of us. No one's helping us. I see nobody. And he's like, this is what I told you. We are on our own. When we go away, we go away. Well, right. The, the interesting things I caught during this was, you know, we just seen the whole big dinner scene that they've got this nice little area. They got a bunch of cots in there. They're not like directly behind bars or feeling that prison life. They go into the visitation area. First of all, you notice that, Karen gets rushed by the line. She yeah. doesn't have to stand yeah. in line. Hello, Miss Hill. Hello. She, yeah, she just Mrs. comes Hill. right in. Nobody checks her for anything. Yeah. But then they're in that scene that they're just packed with people. And it's just, you know, then you start getting that prison feeling. And I like how when they're panning across all the people talking, like one guy's changing a diaper, one guy's, well, getting a little business from his wife and or girlfriend or whatever. And you get to them and then she just loses her shit in front of everybody. And during his prison stint, we are kind of introduced to his Pittsburgh connections. We know that he's into Coke now. And, you know, just like any other uh, mob movie, I guess, there's a transition. Because it was all, uh, before it was drugs, it was protection, and then prohibition, and gambling, and women. But drugs wasn't really their thing yet. Their thing yet, right? And so now we're in a year, or we're in the time of year where... Uh, it starts to change. So, you know, mid-70s going into the 80s, drugs became more prevalent in the mob. And ultimately, I think that's what their downfall was. Four years later, Henry is paroled and expands his cocaine business with Jimmy and Tommy against Polly's orders. Jimmy organizes a crew to raid the Lufthansa vault at John F. Kennedy International Airport, stealing $6 million in cash and jewelry. After some members purchase expensive items against Jimmy's orders and the getaway truck is found by the police, he has most of the crew except Tommy and Henry murdered. Tommy is deceived into believing he is to become a made man and is murdered after walking into the room of the ceremony, partly as retribution for murdering bats. So uh, Henry gets out and he, they go to, uh, when he gets out of jail. Uh, they go to Polly's. Well, they go home first. And that home, the way it's set up, the, bunk know, the look on his face. It's of- tiny, I know. And he's just like, what the fuck is this shit? And he tells her right away, pack your shit, we're going to move. And then he, she's all, but what about this, that, and the other? And he's all, I got my Pitt- Pittsburgh connections, don't worry about it. Who wants to go to Uncle Polly's? And then we get the whole family bit again. And, um, you know, this is where Polly tells, uh, Henry, Henry again, you know, you did what you needed to do inside to get by and okay, but you're out now. You have to leave that drug shit behind. And I don't want to hear that you're doing it. Yeah. There's two things that Polly brings up. One is that, you know, they bring up the Polly's on probation. So he doesn't want anything connecting back to him. Right. And then he mentions anytime any underlings get into drugs, it, always leads back to the boss always so he's like don't get into it if you hear anybody into it you tell me right away right absolutely and so again henry lies to Polly, and and then we also get to see uh the new digs what'd you think of that 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 godish that apartment with the gold and all that uh it was so early 80s i mean it felt really 80s i mean she was walking around with big old shoulder pads on too you know and she's like telling uh Maury and his wife, you know, press that button and then the TV comes out of the fucking... Oh, no, 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 I'm sorry. The, the wall opens. opens. Yeah. 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 Ugly, ugly. So ugly and very gaudy. Very and, gaudy. And then also briefly, we get to see Sandy 
girlfriend number two introduced to us oh so briefly. Yes, uh, she is the one who is uh, in cahoots with Henry and his cocaine business because she's cutting it for him and yep. you know making it so he can turn around and sell it. Um, and in the meantime, uh, they figure out or it comes to Henry's attention or, or something that there's going to be a lot of cash coming through the Lufthansa vault uh maury i believe was the one with the he had the wigs he's the one that brought the uh brought it to their attention about lufthansa and that's why he wanted his money because he's the one who bought all that information right and so uh they bring it to jimmy and jimmy puts together the crew and so you have you know they went through the names of the guys right one of them was frenchy nine of them yeah and then uh this is where we get to uh, introduce to samuel jackson as stacks he's the getaway driver and uh you know they're, they talk about the plan and De Niro's giving his okay, this, that, and the other. And then we cut to Henry in the shower and on the radio, it says that they pulled off this job and he fucking goes crazy. And then they go to this Christmas party and the look, as soon as Henry enters the bar and the look De Niro gives him with his arms wide up and that grin or that smile that De Niro was so uh, known for is fucking awesome, you, you know? And so they're all celebrating and... <laughs> This this is uh, another one of those bits where De Niro has one line in this entire scene, but he says that line over and over again. Can anybody guess what it is? What did I tell you? What did I tell you? What, what Jimmy? It's under my mom's name. What did I tell you? It can't be traced back to me. What did I tell you? Yeah, just over and over again. It's so good. So classic De Niro. The crazy thing about this Lufthansa, you know, raid that they basically stole that money did you know that that's still an open case to this day i did not they still have it as an unsolved crime and i believe i read back in uh, 2014 they even sent like a 78 year old guy who ended up being the lookout for this to jail they actually are still prosecuting yeah well i mean <laughs> bummer so Jimmy's paranoid and stacks mixed up with the truck. And so the police are starting to ask questions maybe. And so Jimmy thinks it's just as easy just to get rid of everyone. So one night he is talking to Maury and he thinks, you know, I'm going to kill this fucker. And he tells Henry, we're going to do it tonight. And he gets all pissed off. And then this is a great bit where Henry kind of tells us, this is how fast it gets decided how a guy gets whacked. You know what I mean? And he has no idea that he's sitting across the table from us and he's going to get killed tonight. And he goes, really, what I'm doing is I'm just uh, stalling to give Jimmy time to cool off and not kill Maury because he doesn't want Maury dead. But, you know, Maury just won't shut up about his fucking money. And uh, they're at the uh, card table. And then I like how De Niro leans over to Henry and, you know, it's bullshit, but he looks at him and he says, you know that thing tonight? Let's forget about it. Just forget about it. Well, that's why I thought this was kind of an, in, an interesting introduction because you feel like Henry has some sway over Jimmy in that he was able to talk Jimmy down and you think, okay, great. You know, this is going to work out one way. Maury's going to survive. But then you find out that even, you know, Jimmy will lie to Henry and Henry has no conception of what Jimmy's capable of. And so that kind of leads up to what happens in the end of this movie is that Henry has realized he doesn't know what Jimmy's actions are actually going to be. Right. Uh, Jimmy becomes a loose cannon. And uh, it, it, it seems to be at first that everything's going to be okay, you know, uh, but then all of a sudden all of these guys start disappearing. and The, the murder who, montage. Yeah, the murder montage was fucking brilliant. I loved it. And I love how uh, Pesci is such a dick, right? So they go into stacks 
and him and Vinny are in there and uh they shoot stack or they walk in and uh Tommy's like, oh, put on some coffee, <laughs> right? And he walks into the bedroom, shoots stacks in the head, walks out, and he says, oh, we're going to have to make that coffee to go. And so Vinny's carrying the coffee pot with him. And he goes, what the fuck are you doing? I was kidding. Put that down, right? And then uh, they fucking kill Murray in his uh, Cadillac. And Tommy says something, oh, let's go, let's go. And he starts the car, and Vinny's just sitting there. goes, what are you doing? And Vinny's all, well, the car's cold. <laughs> There's just that interaction between those two. But I mean, ultimately Vinny is found in a meat truck and it takes two days for him to fall thaw out before they can do the autopsy. Well, if with everybody who was involved with this Lufthansa heist, with the exception of Tommy and Henry, they're all getting silenced. Mm -hmm. So it all can't go back. So out of all of this money, Jimmy gave his tribute to Polly, which was, they say the right thing to do. He took care of Henry, and I'm sure he took care of Tommy, but the rest of it, Jimmy was going to keep. And I'm pretty sure Jimmy had that in mind the entire time. Well, he they even say Jimmy only gave Henry a taste, you know, some Christmas shopping money. He didn't give him the full amount that he promised him. And this is pretty much who Jimmy is, because Jimmy is ultimately all about money. He wants money for him and not for anybody else. Right, right. He does not give it up. Right. And so uh, following that, uh, the three of them get together again. and But this time, something's different. And Henry comes up to Jimmy and Tommy, but Tommy has this swagger about him. And Jimmy, it's, it's has, cool. this, and Jimmy has this giddiness about him. And it turns out they're going to make Tommy. And you, when I saw this in the movies back in 90, I knew, I said, no, they're not. They're going to shoot him in the back of the fucking head because they've already set us up with, you don't know who a wise guy, when a wise guy is going to kill you, you know, you won't hear it coming. And they're like, they're going to make you. And, you know, Jimmy was so excited because it was the first time or it was going to be like one of them were made because Jimmy and Henry can't be made because they're not full Italian. And uh, it comes down to the old, old laws. And so we think that Henry, or we think that Tommy's going to get made. He goes into the uh, ceremony for it to happen. Well, first he says goodbye to his mom. He gets all, uh, you know, dressed up. He goes in, and then the, at the same time we see Jimmy and Henry at a restaurant or a diner. And Henry had said that they had a whole Jimmy and Tommy had a whole method worked out to know when exactly it happened, and you know they take Tommy to this house. He gets into the room and then he can't even, he figures it out at the last second and he says, oh no. And then he gets shot in the back of the head and then, you know, De Niro or uh, Jimmy calls to see what's going on and they're like saying, well, something happened. I kept trying to think of what sparked in Tommy that he, you know, realized at that moment he was about to get whacked. No one was in front. No one was in the room. Empty I, room. I thought it was two things. One, nobody was in the room. And then did you look at the floor? No. It was tiles. So there was no carpeting anywhere on the floor. Easily, you know, easy to wash that out. It could be. But I, I just took the empty room. No, that's what yeah, I yeah, thought too. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then after he gets the news, then they find out that, nope, he he's not he's not here. He's gone. He's gone. That's what it is. What do you mean he's gone? It's, we just couldn't work it out. He's gone. He's gone. I'm sorry. And I kept thinking, you know, for Jimmy... Was Jimmy so concerned about losing Tommy or was he just concerned those were, that was dollar signs. That was power. Jimmy and Tommy were friends. And, mm -hmm. and I, I was thinking about the same thing too, kind of, but then I remembered back in the very beginning, 
Tommy was already with Jimmy when Jimmy introduces Henry to Tommy, mm-hmm. right? So they, I think Jimmy took him under his wing at a very young age, and he always had his back, regardless. When he went after bats, who was the first one kicking bats after Tommy? It was fucking Jimmy, right? So I think Jimmy was really, really devastated that his buddy uh, was taken from us, and you know that was their chance. They were gonna, he was, they were gonna be a crew. You know, mm-hmm. uh, Tommy was going to run the crew one day. And, mm-hmm. you know, Jimmy knew that he had carte blanche because of their past. So I don't think it was about the money with Jimmy and Tommy. I think he was really, really broken up and really upset. And I think this is where Jimmy's downfall starts. He's always been paranoid and he's always been, you know, a crook because that's who he is. But I think this is where it turns for De Niro's character. And this is where uh, I think Henry really starts to have to worry. I completely agree with all of that. By 1980, Henry develops a drug habit and becomes a paranoid wreck. He sets up another drug deal with his Pittsburgh associates, but he is arrested by narcotics agents and incarcerated. After bailing him out, Karen explains that she flushed $60,000 worth of cocaine down the toilet to prevent FBI agents from finding it during their raid, leaving them penniless. Feeling betrayed by Henry's drug dealing, Polly gives him $3,200 and ends their association. Henry meets Jimmy at a diner and is asked to travel on a hit assignment, but the novelty of such a request makes him suspicious. Henry realizes that Jimmy plans to have him and Karen killed, prompting his decision to become an informant and enroll with his family into the witness protection program. After giving sufficient testimony and evidence to have Polly and Jimmy convicted, Henry moves to a nondescript neighborhood, unhappy to leave his exciting gangster life to live as a boring average schnook. The end title cards state that, as of 1990 when the film was released, Henry is still a protected witness, but that he was arrested in 1987 in Seattle for narcotics conspiracy. Henry receives five years of probation, but has since been clean. He and Karen separated in 1989, and Polly died the previous year in Fort Worth Federal Prison from respiratory illness. Jimmy is serving a 20 years to life sentence in New York prison for murder and would be eligible for parole in 2004. Roll credits. So let's talk about the big day. 1980. I really enjoyed this sequence. It was, I guess you could say, as soon as he got into the cocaine business, it wasn't as elegant as the gangster business, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. He wasn't wearing suits anymore, and he was all coked out, and Karen was in on it. Was she was sad. all coked out, too. I was sad to see that she had become a drug addict as well. Oh, were you sad? Yeah. Did it break your heart a little bit? Yeah, she seemed like she's a grown fucking woman. She made her own choices. I'm not. I don't feel bad for her at all. But I, I can feel bad personally. I don't know why. Why are you breaking my balls? Yeah, I, I thought that the rapid fire uh, telling of this day was highly entertaining, and it felt like that we were on this coke field ride along with Henry. And it started first thing in the morning. Uh, he's doing lines. And what's the first thing he has to do? He has to take guns to Jimmy because he wanted to move the guns and Jimmy had silencers for him. And he said, as soon as I opened the door, I knew that uh, Jimmy was going to be annoyed. But as he's getting ready to leave and he's driving to Jimmy's, he notices this helicopter. And this helicopter is following him and continues to follow him throughout the day. So he goes to Jimmy's, can't move the guns. Jimmy's all annoyed. He says, fine. After the guns, he goes to have to pick up his brother, Michael, from the hospital. And then this is where he almost gets in a car accident. And he goes uh, to pick up Michael. And the doctor who's there is like, dude, what the fuck is wrong with you? And he gives him, you know, a half a dose of Valium and sends him on his way. 
so he picks up Karen, and now they have to go on the errands. They're going to go meet their Pittsburgh guy and get some drugs. Uh, but then Karen notices there's the helicopter. So they go to Karen's mom's house, and he t- he as soon as they pull in, he tells Karen, go tell your mom not to come out here and touch anything. And Karen's response is classic. Why do we have to go to my house? Why didn't we go to your mother's house? Yeah, yeah, that was good. Uh, so they hide the guns, they take off, and then for some reason they go shopping. Was did they go shopping just to lose the helicopter? I think they went in to see Maybe. if the helicopter would still be outside, if you know, after like an hour or so. Yeah, and then when they come out and they're looking up in the sky, <laughs> they look so crazy. Yeah, and so they get back in. They, they, I love it because they cut to get in the car. They cut to get the mom's house. They cut to get in the. Uh, guns and then the last cut they're walking to the motel room to do the deal so uh henry meets with the pittsburgh guys and they get the sixty thousand dollars with coke and is able to sell the guns and then we uh cut back to uh now we're back home and he's again making the sauce going over the cooking but now he's got to cut the cocaine and get it ready for transport with um, the babysitter the babysitter so he goes to Sandy's and, you know, she's all pissed off because she is all just kinds of coked up and there's just Coke remnants everywhere and she's trying to split it up and, you know, she gets all pissed off at uh, Henry. And I think one of my favorite Ray Liotta moments in this film is after he gets, you know, he's being all sweet and, you know, uh, oh, sweet, yeah. uh, kind to her and, you know, he's touching on her and grabbing on her and he's promising her this, that. He gets the Coke and he's, this is the last one. He puts it in and then he immediately makes a beeline for the door. And did you notice his laugh yeah. when he walks out of the mm-hmm. door? So funny. He's like, <laughs> I got away with it. You know what I mean? Or something. There's a Ray Liotta laugh throughout this movie that <sighs> is iconic that he, we he put- hear throughout the 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 movie which i really enjoyed like as his trademark i think in every movie yeah it's such a good it's such a good moment so funny i do agree with you professor i think you put it best that this whole sequence this whole day the way that scorsese filmed it felt like a coke driven mess oh 100 percent, absolutely and with the the music choices as well it was very well paced and it it flowed very well Mm -hmm. and the narration by Leota just keeps us moving with it. And they get home and, you know, they have their dinner and that dinner looked fucking awesome. Even though, you know, all we really see is spaghetti sauce. You know what I mean? It's like 10 55 PM and they're finishing dinner. Right. Wow. And, they, and they got to get ready to take her to the airport. The I babysitter. Can't, I can't go to the airport. What the fuck are you talking about? You can't go to the airport. I need my lucky hat. Well, you know what? Fuck the hat. We're going to the airport. We got to get ready. No, we're not. I need my hat. I don't fuck and then he grabs his keys and he's got to go um and then uh during the day uh he tells the babysitter to reconfirm the flight plans or whatever and he says do not use the fucking phone in the house he said it like four times and as soon as they hang up and even the narration says and what does she do she uses the fucking phone so anyways uh they're gonna go get the babysitter's hat and then the cops show up and it turned out that the uh, the helicopter wasn't following them because of the bats thing, which is it was what he initially thought. It was the whole drug thing. And so now his drug world just fucking collapsed on him. So the cops are raiding the house, and Karen has to take all the coke, and she does. I, I would have done the same fucking thing. She cut it up, and she threw it down the toilet, and then um, 
you know, Henry gets out, she comes home. And I think this is another memorable scene between Ray Liotta and uh, Lorraine Bracco is when uh, he finds out that she flushed all the toilet. And they both break down. Yeah. And just the whole Karen, it's all we had. Right. And this, the, she was yelling, he was yelling and he goes, Oh, I can't believe you did it. You fucking killed me. You fucking killed me. And he breaks down the corner. She goes over and, uh, tries to console him and then you know they pass out whatever and when he wakes up the camera specifically pans down to show us that he fell asleep with a gun in his hand because now he is the ultimate paranoid right he is i mean he's really fearing for his life so what does he do naturally he goes to polly you know and i thought this scene was a little heartbreaking you yeah, know what I, mean? I agree after everything that they had gone through together as a family and as a crew you know polly does what he's got to do i mean henry lied to him on multiple occasions i'm shocked that polly just didn't have him whacked right or maybe it would have come later it probably would have come later by the way that polly said i have to turn my back on you now yeah and he gives him the money and it's that moment you know when he says that and i thought it was heartbreaking and you know uh, Henry Hill breaks down, and this has been the family that he's known all of his life. Three decades. Three decades. What was more heartbreaking, that line or the look that Polly gives in court to him? Oh, the line. The line. The line. The The look Polly gives him in court is just like, I can't believe you just fucking said yeah. that after all we've been through, right? Yeah. See. And I get, well, we'll get there. And so now. Karen chats with Jimmy. Karen chats with Jimmy, and this is where uh, Karen gets scared. But she got some money from him. She did. She did. Um, and, but then he, and then Jimmy says, you know, we got some new coats, furs, whatever. Go down this uh, alley good, and look. A new dress. And go, and go look. It's the, it's the end of the block on the right. Keep going. Keep going. And, you know, just Jimmy's demeanor just seemed off. You know what I mean? He played that paranoid uh, uh, feeling very well, and you could tell, and it came across on camera. And so uh, Karen gets scared, doesn't want to do it, and then she leaves. And then when she gets home, she tells, uh, you know, she tells Henry, I just got scared. I just got scared. Do you think Jimmy was going to whack her? Yes. Do you, Professor? Well, that's certainly how the scene was shot, that yeah. she was going to die. Yeah. yeah. The Scorsese obviously wanted to leave that up for interpretation because we don't know to this day if Jimmy was going to have her killed or not. But there was two things in that scene that gives you a real good impression. If she had gone down that alleyway, she would have died. The first thing is, is that there was a sign that they, when they panned out and she was driving away, there was a sign that said one way and pointed down the alley. And then it also right below it said, don't walk. So kind of gives you the impression if she had gone in an alleyway, it would have been one way. I, it's exactly how I took it. Well, I think directors like that don't put those kind of things in and don't pan out to show you those signs unless they want you to take something from it. So Henry sets up a meeting with Jimmy at this diner and, you know, I love what he says. He walks in and he says, I showed up 15 minutes early and Jimmy was already here. And he sat down, and Jimmy was like, how's everything? Everything good? Look, uh, I need you to go down and take care of this thing for me and, and wherever it was. Florida. Florida. And then uh, their narration tells us that Henry says, and this is the exact moment I knew when I wouldn't be that coming if, back. If I went to Florida, I wasn't coming back. Right. And so what does he do? He goes to the FBI. And I love the FBI's agents' uh, reactions to everything. 
You know, Karen's asking all these questions and he's like, frankly, we don't care if you're here or not. We just want him. I just don't want any place cold. Just, can you do that? Just talk to whoever you need to talk to. Just uh, no place cold. That's not really how this works. <laughs> that's well, what he says. The funniest thing about that is according to Henry Hill, what they sent him has some of the coldest winters in the United States. So after this bit, we go to court and, uh, you know, Henry is on the stand and we get that look from Polly that you were talking about. And, and Jimmy, he's and pointing Jimmy. to his friends. Yep. Yep. And, uh, they uh, they do a good job of breaking the fourth wall here as well. Uh, very subtle. Uh, he's giving testimony, and then all of a sudden he looks at the camera and he says, you know, we were wise guys. We didn't want for nothing. We had the best life in the world. Um, we didn't ask. We took. It didn't matter. He we, gets up. He starts walking around. Yep. Yeah, he goes, when I was broke, I would just go out and steal some more. I just took everything we wanted, and it was the best life ever. And then he stops in front of the camera, looks at it, and he says, and now it's all over. And then we cut to a housing development somewhere wherever he gets relocated. And he says, you know, the worst thing about being relocated is the food. I ordered spaghetti the other day and I got egg noodles and ketchup. And now I'm a nobody living as an average schnook. And then the uh, my way from the sex pistol starts. And that's how we end the flick. Yeah. Uh, reading up a little bit about what happened kind of after all of that. Uh, I guess Henry's testimony put away over 50 mobsters. So he went on to testify a lot. Uh, he ended up losing his witness no re relocation status when this movie came out because he went on the press tours with the film crew. And of course, FBI gave up and said, there's no longer, no, no reason to basically put you in witness relocation anymore. It's also said that the reason why he ended up Basically, you know, living, he died, I, don't, I think like five, ten years ago, uh, but he was never murdered was because either all of the people that would have been after him had already died. They'd either gotten too old or he just had too much fame. So there was no point in trying to kill him anymore. Sure. Sure. I believe that. He did ultimately die, though. Yeah. I'm and they sure said, you know, Jimmy, unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, but Jimmy in jail, uh, they talked about, you know, in the little things that they brought up that he would be eligible for probation in 2004. He actually ended up dying of lung cancer before that. Yeah. So I got a question for both of you. We like to use the word fuck. This movie had a whole lot of them and most of them were improvised. How many fucks do you think were in this movie? There had to be at least 300. Uh, three, I don't know, three something. You guys are both close. 321. Yeah. Yeah, it's not doesn't hold the record though. It, it it might have at the time. It did at the time, but then it's been beaten since. Yeah. So now Joe Pesci's mother saw this movie and told Joe she loved the movie, but why has he got to curse so much? Oh my god, that sounds so familiar. Who was the strongest character for you of those three? Uh, I'm gonna have to say it was the strongest character for me was probably De Niro. Probably De Niro, followed closely by Pesci. Uh, it's not that Ray Liotta wasn't strong. It's mm -hmm. just that his character was kind of uh, the peacekeeper of everybody, right? right? And But I think De Niro's presence uh, commanded more, whereas Tommy, he was he was going to look for a fight. He was, he was acting out on purpose, right? De Niro didn't have to. He was calm, cool, until he didn't have to be, and it worked. Mm -hmm. I, I have to agree with you. Uh, Jimmy had the most power, I think, and what was 
you know, a elevated level in this movie. It even goes to say that I guess the mafia knew, you know, they knew that Tommy played a role in killing Billy Bats. They knew that Jimmy played a role as well, but he was such an income income earner, he was basically untouchable. Yeah, it was curious. What about you? Um I, I think I would go with the same order. Jimmy and then Tommy and then Henry. Not no disrespect to Henry. No, no. Henry carries this film. It's, you know it, what I mean? It's his story. It is his story, 100%. And we are told the story through his eyes. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Quick piece of trivia. What role did Ray Liotta turn down to be in this movie? Spider. No, not out, just not to, like, what role so he could even be in this movie? Oh, fucking 1990? 1989? Uh, Driving Miss Daisy? Professor, you got to go. Oh, Godfather 3. No. I don't know. Jaws he was, 4. He was offered the role of Harvey Dent in Batman. Oh, Nin Tim, no, Tim, Tim Burton Batman. Yep. Oh, yeah. Well, they gave it to Billy D. So, mm -hmm. and then they did nothing with it. So, thanks, Tim Burton. All right. So, what do you guys think? Are you guys ready to rate this bitch? Not quite yet. What the fuck? And now it's time for John's. <laughs> moment. Something I always like to do is compare the movies that we review to Lord of the Rings because I feel like everything relates back to Lord of the Rings. So for this movie, it was a tough one. As in other movies, there's always some heroes to pick from or some people that you like and you want to pick from them and then figure out the characters. There weren't any real heroes in this movie. So I had to kind of stretch things a little bit. So when it comes to Frodo, I felt like, like Frodo, Henry Hill takes a beating. He grows up carrying items and carrying on missions assigned to him by those higher up. He goes from being an unnoticed nobody to being somebody in a neighborhood full of nobodies. Just like Frodo went from being a hobbit to being the hero of Middle Earth. Henry's wife, Karen, is Sam. When Henry strays, like Frodo with Gollum, Karen is the one that helps get him back on track. But with a heavier hand than Sam. Unfortunately, unlike Sam, she is seduced deeper and deeper by the ring's effect. Now, what is the ring? In this movie, the ring, or the precious, is the need to be important, the need to be somebody, to succeed, to stand out. Basically, it's ego. Henry's ego drives him. It pushes him to do dark things to live in a certain type of or to live a certain type of lifestyle and when it's all taken away Henry's ego pushes him to even darker territory it's when Henry gets into drugs in the movie that the movie starts to take on a different tone and it leads him down a darker path of destruction for his whole entire world eventually he is forced to make a choice keep going and die or take off the ring. He could choose to die like Golem with his precious, or let his ego go and work with the FBI. Either way, his life is never the same. And like Sam and Frodo, eventually, Karen and Henry also have to go their separate ways. Huh. Interesting. I would see the ring as the lifestyle. Not so much as ego or anything that he wants but it's the lifestyle that's seductive it's the the mob mentality that <clears throat> that drew people into it so not a bad correlation there had you made it um well the reason why i picked 
the ego is because of some lines that Henry says early on that he wanted to be somebody in a neighborhood of nobodies. And so that's why it felt like it was his ego that was driving him. Uh, but yeah, and you're, you're probably not wrong. You know what I mean? But, you know, in comparisons of uh, Lord of the Rings to uh, Goodfellas, I, th- I think I would have put lifestyle as the ring. But hey, valiant effort, I am going to give you C minus. That's where I'm at too, C minus. It was a valiant effort. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am going to break that C minus wall eventually. And that was John's. Moment. All right. So, uh, what do you guys think? Is it time to rate this bitch now? I think we can rate this bitch. Hey, Professor, how do we rate our movies? We rate our movies on a one to five scale of fucks. Five fucks is a movie that we think is cinematic gold. We love to watch this movie whenever. A one fuck movie is a movie that it's one and done. You've seen it and you have no desire to ever see it again. All right. And what is a zero? A zero fuck movie is somebody owes me two hours of my life back. Why did you make me watch that? I hate you. And in other words, we just don't give a fuck. All right. Uh, who would like to go first? Not it. All right. You go first. Goodfellas. I think that this is a, a cinematic masterpiece, and I have a difficult time deciding exactly what I want to give it. It's going to be high, of course, because it is a, a, such a solid movie in my opinion. The characters are written so well. All of our main characters that we have with Polly and Karen and Tommy and Jimmy and Henry, uh, these characters work beautifully together cinematically. And I really enjoyed the narration that Henry takes us through throughout the entire movie. I also really enjoyed all of the music that is sprinkled throughout the movie in emphasizing each one of the scenes so so fun to watch the first part of this movie it is as i was speaking about earlier this this lifestyle that we are drawn into it's just like oh this is amazing the uh the the camera work that we get during the movie is just delightful i really enjoyed that uh am i funny scene and how uh Scorsese shoots it it's you know we can tell that it has taken a turn not necessarily from Henry or from Tommy it's from being able to look at the people around both of them that oh this took a wrong turn (laughs) and it's going somber and oh shit this is scary all of a sudden and having that I think it helps establish throughout the movie um, just the unpredictability nature and the ruthless nature of our main characters that just on a dime they will turn on each other it's amazing that we have these characters early on in the movie not making it to the end not because of the outside forces but because of their own people around them end up taking them down it's fascinating to watch you know this lifestyle and i have to say that i'm compelled to want to watch the movie every time it's on I really enjoyed the, the the last day that we talked about where he has that coke-fueled, frenzied one day, just like how many of his days were like that? This was the day that he got busted, but how many other days did he have like that? Because it felt like that it was probably like that pretty regularly. 
in general, I think that this is probably Scorsese's, probably one of his strongest works. It's hard to say which one I think is his number one movie, but um, it is certainly something near and dear to my heart. I, 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 like I said, I'm torn, but I think I'm going to have to go with five fucks for this movie because it is such a strong and bold movie with our characters. The reason why I think this movie is so strong compared to the other one, which it's a lot like The Wolf of Wall Street, is because you have this character that has so much uh, heartache that he goes through, and then eventually... I feel like that he does get his comeuppance where he is pulled out of that lifestyle. And all of the people around him, we see they end up in prison. They get their just desserts. They deserve to be in prison. And we get to see that. And that is satisfying for me that despite all of their terrible antics, we do see that there is some sense of justice that happens in this movie, which I felt like the end of Wolf of Wall Street did not have. It was very difficult for me to feel highly in at the end of that movie. And if you're interested, you can go listen to that and hear me talk differently about it and why I write the way that I did. But I, I love this movie. This is a wonderful movie. All right, five fucks from The Enforcer. All right, Johnny, two times, you're up, you're up. Goodfellas is an excellent look into the life of a mobster in the making. Martin Scorsese had the challenge of creating likable criminals, and thanks to his casting and portrayal, he succeeded. It's the first story that I can recall told from a mid-level knock-around guy's point of view. A guy working up the ranks of the mob. But being written based on Henry's Hill accounts, it did feel a little bit biased towards him. But if you accept that, Watching it for the content alone, whether a true count or not, it's a really good story. The camera shots were well set up. The continuous shots were amazing. The dialogue felt natural thanks to Scorsese's techniques of letting the actors improvise their lines. One of the reasons he's known as an actor's director. I did feel the narration was useful in some parts. It was a bit overused and could have been cut down. I, it, it, for me, it was a little bit distracting in some parts of the film because I felt like I was listening to it when I really had just been watching what was going on. I do appreciate that the narration, especially early on, helped us figure out who was who and what was going on. It's meant to get, help you get into their headspaces, and I do feel like it accomplished that goal. The music was well planned out and really fit the air and the content perfectly. I have seen this movie now twice, and for me, that's enough. I've gotten everything I needed to get from both viewings. The only reason why I would go and rewatch this movie is to appreciate the performances that were delivered by De Niro, Pesci, and Leota. If you're okay with violence, I would highly recommend seeing this movie. Pesci alone delivers one of the best performances and is a must-see just for that. Throw in a career-making performance for Ray Liotta and, as always, De Niro delivers. But unless you are into gangster-style movies, rewatchability is a bit of a rough ride. So because of all of that, the movie loses maybe a point for my own personal bias of not being into violent gangster-type movies. So adding it all up, I'm going to give this movie four fucks. Right on. 
Way higher than I thought it was going to be. Way higher than I thought, too. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, Goodfellas. Back in 1990, when uh, I saw this for the first time, I remember thinking to myself, wow, uh, the way it was made, uh, the way it was presented to us, the audience, uh, it was fantastic. Martin Scorsese knows how to tell a story and knows how to en- engross you in it, and he does it all with style. Um, this film perfectly cast, this film perfectly executed. There isn't a moment of this film that I wouldn't want to watch uh, again and again. This film, for me, is the pinnacle of gangster flicks. And don't get me wrong, I do love me some Godfather Part Two, But like I said earlier, it's a different kind of gangster flick. And this one is more fueled with uh, entertainment really and sure you're rooting for the bad guys or you're rooting for what's going on but at the end of the day you kind of have to know how it's going to end you know what goes up must come down and uh mobsters very rarely got away with anything and you know and it's it is very reminiscent to wolf of wall street and you can see that the wolf of wall street used the blueprint of goodfellas when telling the story and you know we did a podcast on it so if you want to hear it go listen to it uh, but from the cast to the director, to the score, to everything involved, uh, Goodfellas, uh, is, is a masterpiece. It really is. And it is taught in film school. And whenever anybody is talking about a De Niro film, a Pesci film, a Leota film, a Scorsese film, doesn't matter who it is or where it is or when it is, Goodfellas will always come up. I used to train customer service many, many, many moons ago. And one of my icebreakers uh, for the first day of class was if you were stuck on a desert island and you had the means and you could watch a movie, what three movies would you take? And my movies were always Jaws, The Empire Strikes Back, and Goodfellas. And because of that, I'm giving Goodfellas five fucks. Finally. That is your first five. Yeah, I know it is. Finally. It only took me doing like 40 of them. Yeah, well, I know a good movie when I see it. You two, on the other hand, eh, it's questionable. I just think it's funny that if you're on a desert island, you would want the movie Jaws. Why wouldn't you? Because you're going to get eaten by a shark. On the land? While you're trying to escape the island. Who says you're escaping? Maybe it's a land shark. Haven't you seen the movie uh, Sharknado? Yeah. Those aren't land sharks. Those are tornado sharks. There's a difference. If there was a tornado on this desert island and it was bringing me some sharks, yeah, well, then maybe I'd fucking freak out. Or I'll just take a 12-foot-long chainsaw and go right in the belly and come out the tail. Oh, yeah. Okay. We should do Sharknado. (laughs) Oh, man. All six of them. Can you imagine? I own three of them. Do you really? Yeah. Uh, I I, I think they lost me after the time travel. As soon as they started time traveling, I was like, oh. that, that's where they lost you. That's where they lost me. Now we're not with the sharks being picked up in the tornado. All right. So that is going to wrap it up for this uh, episode of three guys in a flick. Uh, again, we just want to say rest in peace, Ray Liotta. Thank you for all of the joy and entertainment that you brought to us over the years. You will surely be missed. Uh, with that being said, I want to thank Zach, Ronnie, and Jill for always listening. Keep on listening. 
If you want to hear what movie we are going to review next, be sure to check out the website and any of the social media platforms that we are on. Speaking of which, hey, John, where can they find us? Well, if you want easy access to our podcast, our show notes, movie movie trivia, and the such, go to our website at threeguysinaflick.com. We're also available on most of the social media out there, as well as every podcasting hosting site. All right, so for Three Guys in a Flick, I'm the Don. And I'm Johnny two times, two times. And I'm the Enforcer. Thanks for listening. Welcome back. You are listening to Three Good Fellas and a Flick. Welcome back. You are listening to Three Gangstas. <laughs> Gangstas. <laughs> Welcome back. You are listening to Three Wise Guys and a Flick. So thanks for taking us back, buddy. Oh, you're welcome. Anytime. Oh, and so then- You gotta quit fucking busting my balls here. I feel like this movie does show that crime does pay, but- there is a tax and it's not on the dollar, but it's actually on your soul. Well, you have to have a soul in order for that to, uh, they, all right, fuck off. Good night.